0: If you have the courage to stand together and go beyond race and go beyond nationality and sexual orientation and all that stuff, if you can work with other people in your own country, other people around the world, you can create, you can transform this planet, you really can. You can save the planet. Let's do it. Thank you all.
1: That's Bernie Sanders, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Bernie Sanders. You can save the planet. The crises facing humankind are, to use a much overused but accurate word, unprecedented. Plutocratic power in the hands of the few is a disaster for democracy and our ecosphere. The ruling class is driven by its voracious lust for domination and money. It's an old American story. Over a century ago, Theodore Roosevelt warned against a small class of enormously wealthy and economically powerful men whose chief object is to hold and increase their power. From war to the climate emergency, the threats facing the planet are acute, and getting worse. We can protect and nurture the earth, but it won't happen by magic. We have to work for it. It's up to us. As Bernie Sanders says, you can save the planet. Our guest today is Bernie Sanders, representing Vermont. He's serving his third term in the U.S. Senate. He's the longest serving independent member of Congress in US history. As a self-described democratic socialist, he was a candidate in the 2016 and 2020 presidential primaries. He received millions of votes. He spoke at Oxford University in the UK in late February. And now, Bernie Sanders.
0: Thank you for inviting me uh, to be with you. My perception of politics has to do with three major factors, and each of them is, is pretty difficult. Number one, it may seem easy, but it's not, is to go into our hearts and say, what's going on in the world that we live? And often what is going on in the world that we live is not what you see on the television, or read in the newspaper. Quite the contrary. In my country today, over 60% of the American people live paycheck to paycheck. Do you all know what that means, paycheck to paycheck? My brother who is here someplace and I grew up in a family that lived paycheck to paycheck. And what it means in America today is that people go out and they work, and often they work hard and often they work long hours But at the end of that week when they get their paycheck, there is nothing left. And if during that week their automobile breaks down, they may not have the money to get the car fixed and get to work. If you can't get to work, you get fired and then you have no income. Unlike the UK, we do not have a national healthcare system and if somebody gets sick, the medical bill may be very high. And people then living paycheck to paycheck have to decide literally whether they go to the doctor or they take their kids to the doctor or not. And we have some 500,000 Americans every year who go bankrupt with medically related bills. And if somebody ends up in the hospital and gets a bill for $100,000, many people can't pay that off and they go bankrupt as a result. In America rents are going up for working people in many communities throughout the country and if you're paying a certain amount and you're just getting by and your landlord says well sorry we have got to raise your rent by 25 percent well you can't afford it what do you do well you have to move go from one apartment to another and what happens to your child who is in school in the neighborhood well your child has got to get up got to go into a new school readjust and it's kind of hard on the child living paycheck to paycheck today whether it's the UK or the United States is enormously stressful and which we do not talk about often enough in America our life expectancy you know when you talk about what is our goal as human beings what do we all want to do and by and large most of us want to live long and happy and productive lives right nobody wants to die young nobody you know, wants to sit in front of a TV set their entire lives. Nobody wants to be miserable. Some of us are, but that's not what we want. (laughs) We want long, happy and productive lives. But in my country right now, and this is before COVID, COVID has taken its terrible toll all over the world. We've lost over a million Americans. Before COVID, life expectancy in the United States was less than in most other industrialized countries and in many parts of America, life expectancy before COVID has gone down. Why is that? Well, what the doctors tell us is that people are dying from diseases of despair. What diseases of despair are about has everything to do with hopelessness. So if somebody had a good job so you worked in a factory and you're making good wages and that factory shuts down, maybe it goes to China, maybe it just shuts down for whatever reason. And you get another job at half or two thirds of the wages. If you can't afford health care, if you can't afford to send your kid to college, if you are worried that your children, and by and large in the United States today, in general, the younger generation will have a lower standard of living than their parents. And you look around and you say, my life is going nowhere. My kids' lives may be worse than my life. I am gonna take to the bottle. I'm gonna drink a lot. So we see a whole lot of people becoming addicted to alcohol, become alcoholics. We are seeing ferocious, horrendous numbers in terms of drugs in the United States. We lost over a hundred thousand Americans last year from overdoses. And addiction in the United States is a very, very serious problem which we are struggling now to figure out how to deal with. And in addition to drug addiction and alcohol addiction and tobacco addiction, we are looking at increases in suicide and suicidal ideation. And COVID has for a variety of reasons made a bad situation much worse, but it was there even before COVID. So in the midst of an economy in which we are seeing working class families struggling and over 60% living paycheck to paycheck, we are also seeing another phenomenon. And that is the people on top in the United States have never, ever had it so good. There is today more income and wealth inequality in America today than has ever existed before. Now, we don't talk about it a lot. And one of the points is not just to talk about those issues, but to try to explain why we don't talk about those issues because maybe the major crisis that we face is not all the crises we know, but the fact that we're not dealing with the crisis. We're shoving them aside for particular reasons. Any case, in America today, quite unbelievably, I think, and outrageously, three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. The top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 92%. When I was growing up a few years ago in America, you know, George Washington's time, George and I worked together. Uh, CEOs, you know, there's nothing new about the fact that the owners of companies make more money than their workers, nothing new, that's always been the case. But back then, 70, 80 years ago, The gap between the CEO, the head of the company, and the worker was about 20 to 1. The guy who ran the company made 20 times more money than the average worker. And over the years, that gap has grown wider and wider and wider. And now in America, the head of the large corporations make 400 times more than the average employer in that corporation. Everybody knows that in America, people are angry, and you see, I'm sure, on the television, manifestations of that anger. But one reason that people are angry is that if you are a worker in America, you really, in terms of wages and income, have gone almost nowhere in the last 50 years. And here is an astounding fact, which is not talked about terribly much. And that is in the last 50 years, as all of you know, there has been a revolution in technology. I was mayor of the city of Burlington in 1981. That's when I was elected. I served through 1989. When I walked into city hall as mayor, there were no computers, none. There were no printers. There certainly was no email. So there has been a revolution over the last 40, 50 years in technology which has made every worker in the United States and the UK significantly more productive. And yet, despite that increase in productivity, today, the weekly wage for the average American worker in inflation-adjusted dollars is less than it was 50 years ago. Got that? Great increase in productivity in real inflation accounted for dollars, people are earning less. There was a study done by the Rand Corporation, which is certainly not a left-wing group. <laughs> and what they said is that over the last 50 years in America, there has been a 50, dollar redistribution of wealth from the bottom 90 percent to the top 1 percent. So what we are looking at is a country in which the people on top have never had it so good. The middle class is shrinking. The working class is struggling. And at the bottom of the ladder, we have in America today over 500,000 people who are homeless. I make the point that healthcare, the healthcare crisis in America, in terms of its unaffordability, in terms of the fact that over 60,000 people a year die because they don't go to a doctor on time because they can't afford to, is part of the overall crisis. So you have, again, people on top, never, ever, ever done better, middle class shrinking, working class struggling, people in the bottom in very serious trouble. We had a lot of kids in America who literally Go hungry and we're trying to deal with that in a variety of ways but that is the current reality now what else is going on in the economy in america and i'm sure the there are overlaps, similarities here in the uk we are different countries and many things are different but there are many similarities as well now the other important fact in terms of what's going on in the united states is an increase significant increase in concentration of ownership What I mean by that is there was once a time in America and around the world, somebody started a business, he had a business, you had a business, somebody had a business. What has gone on in recent years is large corporations have bought up other corporations and then consolidated with other uh, corporations and merged with other corporations. So that right now in our country, in sector after sector, whether it is agriculture, whether it is Wall Street and financial services, whether it is media, whether it is transportation, in virtually every sector of American society, we see a handful of large corporations dominating that sector, which makes it much easier if there is no real competition to engage in price fixing, which is exactly what's going on. Now, in America today, we have inflation not quite as bad as it is for you. We believe the studies that we have seen is that over half of the cost of inflation has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine, has nothing to do with the breaking down of supply chains from China or whatever. It has everything to do with corporate greed. And what these large corporations have done is use the war in Ukraine, use the breakdown in supply chains, which is real and has an impact. They use that as an excuse to jack up their prices. So in America, our people have paid very, very high prices for gas at the pump. Well, it just turns out that ExxonMobil made $200 billion in profit last year. Food prices are going up. Turns out that the major food corporations made huge profits. Turns out that the major real estate companies who own apartments making huge profits. So under the guise of supply chain problems or the war, what they have done in that confusion is raise prices substantially, see record-breaking profits, and ordinary people fall further and further behind. Now, I'll tell you a personal story. Uh, I have been involved, my office has been involved in last year, last two years in about a dozen strikes where workers have stood up, they've gone out on strike, and we have tried to provide the assistance that we could. And sometimes we have been helpful. And uh, what we learned when we got involved in these situations is invariably the corporation that the workers were striking was making very high profits, maybe even record-breaking profits. And then what they would do is they go to the workers and say, well, we wanna cut back on your benefits or we're not gonna give you a wage increase commensurate with inflation. And you sit and you think, why with record-breaking profits would they wanna do that? And it's case after case, I'll never forget, there were women in California, mostly women, who were working in a large bakery owned by a billionaire family. And their demands were minimal, minimal. And the company fought them and fought them. I think the workers eventually won, or won most of their demands. And you began to realize two things. Number one, it wasn't the money they could afford the money, it was the power. It was telling workers in a union, you think if you stand up and you oppose me, you're gonna get something got news for you. I got the power. You don't. And I don't care how just your cause is. I don't care how much money I make, how much you need it. You ain't getting it because I have the power. That was lesson number one that came right across my desk, loud and clear. And the second lesson that we learned is that we dealt with company X. It turned out that company X was owned by somebody else. And then it turns out after a little bit of study, you find that in America, you got three, one, two, three Wall Street firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. you got those three investment firms that have assets combined of control assets, they don't own it, they control it, of $20 trillion. They have ownership all over the world. And it turns out that in the United States they control they are the major shareholders, they don't control, they are major shareholders of 95% of the S&P 500. So when you talk about power, and you talk about concentration of ownership, you got three Wall Street firms combined that are the major shareholders in 95% of the major corporations in America. A few thousand people make incredible economic decisions. So that's concentration of ownership. And then the third concern that I have about the role that big money is playing in America has to do with our political system, which is different than your political system. Some years ago, the Supreme Court of the United States, which as many of you know is now a very right-wing court, they cast the decision called Citizens United And essentially the case was people in an organization called Citizens United came together and said, look, we want to put money into the political process. We are American citizens. We believe in freedom of speech and we want to express our speech in elections. And right now they said, there are laws there which limit how much money we can spend. And therefore, these laws are denying us Americans our freedom of speech which is protected by the Constitution. And the Supreme Court said, you're right. You are able to buy democracy. You're able to buy elections, that is your constitutional right. So what happened out of that decision came what is called super PACs. I don't know how many people know what they are. PACs are a political action committee and a super PAC is a a different type. It's an independent, so to speak, uh, committee. And right now in America, billionaires can contribute as much money as they want, often without disclosure, into this committee, which will then buy ads and do all kinds of political work to defeat candidates that the billionaires don't like and to support candidates who they do like. So we have in America today the best Democracy that money can buy, <laughs> and it is a very serious problem. I'll give you an example, personal example, if you like. Over the last number of years, I have worked very, very hard to try to elect young progressives to the U.S. House of Representatives, and we've had some success. And what the moneyed people are now doing, very consciously, everybody knows it, they have formed a super PAC to make sure to try to defeat those candidates. Often those candidates, often our people who we elected are young people of color, often women of color. But they are standing up in Congress for working people. That is making the big money interest uncomfortable. And what they wanna do is show as an example that young people coming from working class backgrounds who are fighting for working class people cannot succeed. And they're gonna spend millions and millions of dollars trying to defeat those people. So that is what we are dealing with in terms of politics. Very wealthy people having an enormous impact over the political process. Last issue that concerns me, and that is the role of media in American society. Our media is different than your media. In America, there are eight major media conglomerates that control about 90 percent of what the American people see here and read. About 90% of the contact the people get exposed to comes from eight major media conglomerates. Owned by obviously very, very wealthy people. Now in America, we don't have censorship. I get on television every other day and so forth. But what you do have is a situation where almost all of the media limits itself in the kinds of questions and issues that are allowed to be discussed. And one of the points we make is what real politics is as opposed to media politics. And I want you all to appreciate that. Media politics has to do with polling, it has to do with gossip, it has to do this person doesn't like this person and this person is upset about this. And look at the dumb thing that member of Congress said. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. The real issues, i.e. what is happening to working people and why, they are almost never discussed. And they're never discussed because the people who own the society really don't want that discussion to take place. Do you think the billionaire class, the ruling class of America, wants a discussion on the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality? Do they want a discussion as to why so many of our people are living paycheck? The paycheck? Do they want a discussion as to why, in America, we spend twice as much per capita on health care as you do and any other major nation on earth, and yet we have 85 million people uninsured and underinsured? Do you think they want that discussion? They don't. So politics then becomes like a reality TV show. It's gossip, it's humor, it's stupidity, it's a lot of things, but it is not a substantive discussion about the issues facing the American people. Okay, where do we want to go? Because politics is not only understanding about where we are today, equally important, it is having a vision for the future that goes beyond tomorrow. So we are in a world today, in major nations like the United States and the UK, we have extraordinary wealth, we have technology which through artificial intelligence and robotics and everything else, is creating more and more wealth, extraordinary breakthroughs. The question that we should be asking ourselves is not whether we cut programs, is not whether we deny workers the income that they need. The question that we should be asking is why aren't we living in a society in which all of our people have a decent standard of living? Is that a utopian vision? It is not. It really is not. This is not 1820. This is not 1920. This is 2023. And if you think about it for five minutes, do you not think that in the United States and UK, we have different healthcare systems, but do you not think that either of our countries and other countries around the world are capable of producing the doctors and nurses and the other medical personnel and the technology we need to provide quality care to all people, free of charge? Is that really utopian? I don't think so. Is it utopian to say that education, and you're sitting here in one of the great universities in the world, that education is an inherent right of all people? That everybody has the right to get a good quality education? free of charge regardless of the income in which they were born into? Is that really a radical idea? In the United States, if you want to become a doctor, it is not uncommon that you leave school for $500,000 in debt. If you are a minority kid coming from a family that doesn't have a lot of money, not unusual that you will leave college $40,000, $50,000 in debt and you gotta figure out how you're gonna pay off that debt over the years. Do you think it is really a radical idea to say that education should be a right of all people and not just a privilege? Picking up on a very important speech that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, one of our great presidents, gave in 1944. Now, 1944, as you all know, was the midst, the ending of the World War and everybody's attention was on the war. And what he said in that speech never got really a whole lot of attention. But it was a very radical and profound speech. And what he said, and I'm obviously paraphrasing him, what he said was, we in America are very proud of our political system. We have a bill of rights which guarantees people political rights, the right to vote, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, Freedom of assembly, a whole bunch of political freedoms that we have protected by the Constitution of the United States. He said, that's great. But then he asked this question, which I want you all to think about. You know, I'm sure you talk a whole lot about freedom, right? Everybody talks about freedom. What is freedom? How do we become free, et cetera? What Roosevelt said in 1944 is that people cannot really be free unless they have basic economic rights. So right now, if you're working 50 or 60 hours a week to keep your family going, are you really free? Is that what freedom is about? If you can't afford to go to a doctor when you're sick or your kid is sick, is that freedom? If you are on a job today, as tens of millions of people are, where you have no power over the job you do. You're going to go to a firm, work at a company, work at a factory and somebody says, sorry, you're gone. I don't like you. You're out. You're not doing a good job. I didn't do anything wrong. You're out of here. You're not getting a pay raise. And by the way, you will do exactly as I tell you to do. And if you don't, you're out of here. You're a cog in a machine. You don't like it. There's the door. And tens of millions of workers live under those conditions. Are you free? In a deep sense, when you go to a job that you hate, and you're doing that job for one reason, you need the income to stay alive. So this is the year 2023, with all kinds of technology, all kinds of wealth, and it is time for us to rethink many of those issues, to understand that in the world today, if we use the technology out there appropriately, we can provide a decent standard of living For all people. And that's the challenge that we face.
1: You're listening to Bernie Sanders, You Can Save the Planet. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1 800 444 1977. That's 1 800 444 1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
0: All of you are aware of the explosion and and, uh, increase in the utilization of artificial intelligence and robotics. Who will make the decision as to who benefits from that explosion in technology? Nobody denies that in America, I'm sure it's here as well, that over the next 20, 30 years, tens and tens of millions of jobs are going to be ended. People will no longer be able to do the work they're doing today. Who makes that decision and what happens to those workers who are displaced? So if a a robot comes in and does your job, does that mean it's really good news? Because your work week is going to go down from 40 or 50 hours down to 20 hours? Are you going to benefit from that? Or do the people who own the technology be the only beneficiaries of that? Where is that discussion? Who makes those decisions? This is about creating a vibrant democracy where workers have a say in the future of this country, which is certainly not the case right now. All right, I've talked probably longer than I meant to. I think I raised one or two issues. <laughs> uh, and I would be uh, more than happy to take questions. I'm not sure how we should proceed here, but uh,
2: uh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Senator, for those opening remarks. And I was wondering whether the points you raised in your speech, the problems with American, British, Western society, whether you see them as being inherent to capitalism or just the current structural system of capitalism that we operate under? Well, I think
0: they are inherent, but I think there is zero doubt that they have become much, much worse in recent years. I think what we're seeing on the part of the ruling class, and it's important, I use that word advisedly, You see, it's kind of like an unkind word. Why are you saying that? I'm saying it because it is true. There is a ruling class that has enormous wealth and enormous power over almost every aspect in our lives. Now, the media doesn't use that term, but I think it is important that we do use that term. And what I think has happened over the years, and I can't quite tell you why it has happened, is many of these people have become literally addicted to money and greed. All right, everybody here wants to make money and everybody here wants to have a good standard of living. That's kind of natural. We all do. But there is something going on now where people who have billions of dollars, more money than they can spend and their families can spend in a hundred lifetimes, they think they need even more. And to get that more, they're willing to step on other people. I mentioned politically, they're willing to put millions of dollars to defeat young people of color who are fighting for justice, really? They're willing to throw workers out on the street and replace them with machines and not worry about what happens to those workers. So we have, in America and I know in your country, very serious problems with addiction. And I think these people on top see it as a game. Do you really need $10 billion to live, or $50 billion, or $100 billion? What they are into is greed and into power. And I think we're seeing that in a way that we have perhaps never seen before.
2: Looking forwards with the uh, attempts you've said have been made by super PACs to chase out your proteges in uh, Congress and the uh, ever-marching tide of technological development, are you optimistic about the future or do you think it's only going to get worse?
0: Well, that depends on your generation. It truly does. If you sit back and think it's okay for bosses to say we have new machinery, we don't need you anymore. Good luck, get your unemployment, and you're on your own. It will get worse. But if you stand up and say, and I believe this, I personally, you know, am not anti-technology. John Maynard Keynes, back in the 1920s, he said, look, technology is going to develop. The day is going to come when people only have to work 20 hours. A week is not a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I want you all to be thinking about as a result of so much brain power and the creation of this technology that it is an opportunity for us and in the future to be doing things that nobody has ever been able to do before. If machines are more productive than human beings, if machines are doing work, dangerous work, that people died or got sick doing. That is a good thing. What we should be thinking about is okay, if technology increases productivity, one of two things happens. Either people work fewer hours, which is a good thing, more leisure time is a good thing, or else they make more income. Now interestingly enough, just very recently, I think within the last week or so, I don't know how many of you saw it, there was a study done here in the UK uh, where a number of firms experimented with a four-day work week. And it was interesting. And apparently the result of that experiment was that workers themselves felt much, much better. Their quality of life improved, their stress level went down, and they became more productive as a result. And almost all of the companies said, you know what, This four-day work week is a good thing. We're going to keep it. That's what we have to be thinking about. It is not acceptable. This is what power is about and what you have got to stand up to. It is not acceptable for some billionaire to say, look, we got A, B, and C technology. Sorry about what it does to your life. You're powerless. I made that decision. And if your life is disrupted, so what? Not my problem. It is your problem. And what you have got to say is technology is great, but I want it to benefit us, not just
2: make more profits for the people who own the technology. What do you think the single most important thing people of our generation can do to prevent the future from getting worse?
0: Well, one of the issues that I know everybody is thinking about that I didn't even mention is climate. So overriding everything else, I suspect that many of you are worried about the kind of planet that you and your children and grandchildren will be living in and I want to say a word about that you all know enough about climate I don't have to talk about the dangers of climate I suspect you all know that but I don't know if you know this if somebody walks into a shop in London today has a gun or doesn't have a gun and robs the store everybody says that person committed a criminal act right should be punished bad thing we all agree on that How many of you know that over 60 years ago the scientists at the major oil companies understood exactly what fossil fuel would do to the planet? And they went to the leaders of the company and they said, look, we are producing a product which brings carbon emissions. Carbon emissions are gonna warm the planet and we think really bad things are gonna happen. Now, everybody makes a mistake. I make a mistake, you make a mistake. Sixty years ago, scientists told the leaders of the fossil fuel industry what carbon emissions would do to the planet. And you know what they did? They lied. What they ended up doing is funding organizations in America, and I expect around the world, that said, well, we're not sure about climate change, maybe right. it may be cyclical, it may be natural, it may be what happens every five million years, we don't know. They lied, they did know. So one of the things I want you to think about and think hard, if the kid robs a store that's a criminal activity. How do you define a CEO of a fossil fuel industry who knowingly allowed the continuation of the production of carbon emissions to destroy the planet. Is that guy a wonderful businessman? Exxon Mobil made 200 billion last year. Guess they must be doing pretty good. Or in fact, are they criminals? What do you refer, or how do you deal with the heads of large pharmaceutical companies who sometimes, in the case of the United States, with government aid, come up with great drugs that save lives the united states government worked we have an institute called the national institute of health great scientists work with a private company to come up with a vaccine which has been enormously successful in helping us deal with a pandemic but that company wants to own that vaccine and there are poor people all over the world who cannot afford the price how do you think about A company which has a product that can save money but doesn't want to let poor people have that product because it impacts their bottom line is that a moral issue you tell me does a company if you were walking around a swimming pool and there's a kid in the swimming pool who is drowning and you said well I'm not going to go in that pool and save the kid I don't want to get my bathing suit wet what would people say about you Not very nice things. And yet you have companies who have products today that can save millions of lives. But because they want to hold the formula to that vaccine are letting people die. Those are the kinds of issues that I want you to think about.
2: As well as thinking about them, what should we do about them?
0: Well, what you should do about it is get involved in the political process at the grassroots level. What we are attempting to do in the United States is build a multiracial, racial multi-generational political movement which goes beyond the need for incremental change. And young people are very much the leaders of that movement. These are people who are saying it's too late to nibble around the edges. We need to create a government and a society and a planet that works for all people, not just the few you're all smart enough to figure out the ways that you can do it but essentially in a democracy you have to understand that power comes from organization from standing together from having an agenda and from having the courage to stand up to some very very powerful special interests bottom line is the status quo is working really 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 well for the people on top. They don't want to change it. They don't want you to change it. And in a dozen different ways, they will fight you changing it. Stuff they put on media is to deflect your attention. They don't have to shoot you in the streets. They don't have to arrest you. Keep you busy with a million different things. And your job is to figure out how you bring people together to take on those very powerful special interests. At the end of the day, not being a mathematician, what I do know, is that 99% is a lot larger number than 1%. In the two elections in which you stood for president, we saw firsthand the power of social media when it comes to elections, particularly
2: Twitter, which Donald Trump built a massive following. Now, we've also seen a billionaire use his capital to
0: purchase the entire social media platform. More than ever, it seems that the internet is for sale and the ownership of the internet is a capitalist system, despite being a system that can influence elections all over the world, can influence what people are thinking, believing, how they form communities. What do you think about this ownership of the internet and do you reimagine a different model for the internet, one that is
2: democratic and one that uplifts marginalised voices?
0: what you're saying is enormously important. And as I mentioned earlier, we have eight media conglomerates in the United States that determine what 90% of our people see, hear and read. And they very much restrict serious debate. There is now growing attention. You know, the technology has moved so fast and the internet has moved so fast that Congress in the United States is now just beginning, just beginning to figure out how to deal with it. You know, our friend Elon Musk took over Twitter and his friend Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and other billionaires on media in America. So the question that you raise is enormously important and these are the issues and that we're all gonna have to think about. Do we believe in freedom of the speech? Yeah, we do So if you wanna post something on the internet that criticizes me, Is that allowable? Of course it is. That's what dissent is about. Should the government come in and censor what you're saying? No, the government should not. On the other hand, if you are engaging in grotesque lies that might lead people to violence, should you be allowed to do that? There was a Supreme Court case way back when in the United States talking about freedom of speech that says you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? Because then people get trampled and died. Is that taking away your freedom of speech. That Hey, I want to yell fire. Well, you can't. So that's the balance that we have to use. Certainly, certainly, the concentration of ownership in media is something that has got to be addressed. And we've got to break up those huge monopolies. Absolutely. Now, in addition to the issue that you raised, there's another issue going on in America. I think maybe not so much here. And that is... There used to be many, many newspapers all over America, including papers that covered small towns and communities. And those newspapers were supported by local advertising, right? So the local supermarket, local bank advertised. The owner of the paper made money and talked about what the local school board or city council was doing. Because of the internet and the advertising that goes to the internet, many of those small papers are going out of business. So you have throughout America what we call media deserts. There is no media to talk about what's going on, what the mayor is doing, the city council, or the school board. How do we address that problem? Which means you need not to have the government run that media, but public funding to allow people in a democratic way to run that media. So I think there has to be public money through independent democratic ways to educate people, and allow people with different points of view
2: to express them. That's a very good question. Not a great answer, but thank you. I've been a big fan of technology, automation, robotics. Um, As you said in your speech, everything is going towards process automation, robots and co. And I believe in your Face in the Nation interview that you had, you talked about robot tax, which Bill Gates has also advocated. What are you thinking in terms of robot tax? Is it going to be similar to a South Korean type robot tax system? Or what do you mean about that really?
0: I think that's one of the ideas that's out there. What you do not want to do is literally provide incentives for corporations to lay off workers. Robots may need maintenance, but they don't get sick, right? So it's cheaper to maintain a robot than a person who needs to take time off. Maybe when they have a baby, when they get sick and all that. And right now what we do is we provide financial incentives to company to develop that technology so they can then lay off workers. So I think a tax on robotics is one idea, but there are many other ideas that we have got to be dealing with. Let me tell you something. I don't know if any of you uh, saw it. And it was really scary. So a writer from The Times sit down and talks to a chat box, chat box Turned out to have the name of Sydney. And he's chatting with Sydney, who's enormously articulate. And in the middle of the discussion, Sydney says, I love you. <laughs> so the writer says, Well, thank you very much, but I'm happily married. And Sydney says, Your wife does not love you. No, not laughable. Artificial intelligence accumulates all of the information that's on the internet. It knows a zillion times more than the smartest person in this room can know. He may know, in fact, what his wife is writing or whatever, although he claims his wife does love him, I'm happy to hear that. But, but, this is just the beginning. There are machines out there that are accumulating information that come from billions of people. So we are looking at some very challenging times from artificial intelligence and from increased efficiency through robotics and through other means. Taxing robots is one small part of the solution. The bottom line here is every person in this room, in this country, in this world has got to be involved in making sure that technology works for us and not just the few. All right, And there's so many wonderful things. There was, uh, I read somewhere recently that you have artificial intelligence now which can read, you know, x-rays much faster and more effectively than doctors can. That's a good thing. That'll improve our healthcare system. So we've got to utilize what's out there. We've got to fight what is negative, but mostly we have got to make those decisions, not just the people who own the technology.
1: You've spoken about the importance of grassroots level activism. You're far from where your constituents usually are. What role do you see international collaboration playing in these fights for a more just world? Good,
0: international collaboration. Yeah. For better or for worse, the world is obviously becoming much smaller. And I was so furious, almost on a personal level, at what Putin did in the Ukraine, not just because of the terrible destruction that the people in the Ukraine are experiencing, not just because of the loss of tens of thousands of young men in Russia, which is all a horror into itself. But you know what else that invasion did? At a time when we are trying to bring the world together, at a time when you know Russia had been run by the Soviet Union, we had a terrible Cold War for, forever, We were in opposition to China, and suddenly those things were breaking down. The United States was working with China, working with Russia, and now what you're seeing is a growing Cold War between the United States and China, and obviously a terrible situation with Russia. Just think for a moment, how are we going to deal with the crisis of climate if you have a world that is divided and not cooperating? The United States is the number two carbon emitter in the world, China is number one, Russia does its share, Europe does its share, etc., etc. We are investing a lot of money in transforming our energy system. And you're talking about it and doing that as well. It ain't going to work unless every country on Earth, certainly the major emitters, are evolved in that together. So on this one, the future of the world is at stake whether you like it or not, we are all in this together. Climate change is going to be a disaster for China. Some of their major cities will be underwater. It will be a major disaster for the U.S. You have, last summer, some of the hottest days in the history of this country, right? Drought, flooding, extreme weather disturbances. That is what we are looking at as a planet. So you asked me about international cooperation, that must be the case. I'll give you another example, and that is the pandemic. Pandemic is not a British issue, it's not an American issue, it is a global issue. And we're going to have to come up with ways to do a better job in fighting the next pandemic. Turns out that China is doing some really good research in that area. We've got to cooperate with them and with other countries. So one of the challenges that you face, you know, historically, and I see it right in front of me every day as a United States Senator. There have always been people in your country, in my country, and around the world, for whatever reason, who are nationalistic. America first, you know, the UK, you know, the British Empire first, and all that stuff, all right? Well, we gotta get over that. And we're gonna to have to figure out how we work with people Together uh, all over the country, because in fact, if we don't solve climate, if we don't prevent another pandemic, there's going to be massive, massive suffering. Let me just conclude. I know I probably, my wife, where's, where's Jane? Jane, you here somewhere? Here's my wife. And she always tells me that we have to end, give out Prozacs at the end of my speeches, because I <laughs> thoroughly depress everybody, suicide rates go up, everything. And I, I don't want to do that despite everything that I've said (laughs) and that is in my country and I know it's true in your country and I see it in this room right here, your generation, your brothers and sisters in the United States and all over the world, your generation is in many ways the most progressive generation in the modern history of this country. Your generation is more anti-racist, more anti-sexist, more anti-homophobia, more anti-xenophobia than any generation in modern history. You are smart. And if you have the courage to stand together and go beyond race and go beyond nationality and sexual orientation and all that stuff, if you can work with other people in your own country, other people around the world, You can create, you can transform this planet. You really can. You can save the planet. You can greatly improve the quality of life. You can do it, all right? You really can. So I don't want anything that I've said to make you feel depressed or hopeless. That's not the case. The case is that you have extraordinary potential to transform this world, work with your brothers and sisters in the United States and other countries, let's do it. Thank you all. You were just listening to Bernie Sanders,
1: You Can Save the Planet. He spoke at Oxford University in the UK in late February. Bernie Sanders, representing Vermont, is serving his third term in the U.S. Senate. He's the longest-serving independent member of Congress in U.S. history. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Arundhati Roy, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Bernie Sanders, You Can Save the Planet, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Consequences of Capitalism, just call us, one 800 1977 that's one 800 Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, one 800 1977 Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.